0: Thank you. the other week I was uh, reading an article online about corporate mission statements. And if you don't know what a a mission statement is, a mission statement is exactly what it sounds like. It's a brief statement that a corporation or organization puts out that says, this is what we exist to do. It's just a succinct way of explaining what they are in business to do. For instance, uh, the corporate mission statement of the Casper Mattress Company is, quote, great sleep made simple. Now, I have a two-year-old and a five-month-old at my house. And so if anybody from the Casper Mattress Company is listening to this sermon, please send help. But there, there are some corporate mission statements. When I started reading this article, I started kind of following this rabbit, rabbit trail, you know. And there are some corporate mission statements that are really, really just dumb. Here is the mission statement to Chipotle, the Mexican restaurant. Food with integrity. I'm thinking, how about just food with salsa? Like, that's... That's what you do. Coca-Cola. Here's Coca-Cola's mission statement. Listen to how preachy this is, all right? To refresh the world. To inspire moments of optimism and happiness. To create value and make a difference. I'm thinking, no, you exist to pump up as many people as possible with high fructose corn syrup. That's that's all you do. Amazon's mission statement is to be Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything that they might want to buy online and endeavor to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. Listen, Amazon exists to take over the world. We know what they're doing, all right? Sometimes you just wish that some of these companies would be honest and they would just say, look, we exist to make as much much money as possible in as little time as possible while getting in the smallest amount of legal trouble possible. That's what we're here to do. But as I read that article, it made me think about you. I wonder, do you have a mission statement for your life? Like if I woke you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I said, in one sentence, tell me what your life is about, what would you say? The first thing you would say is, yeah, go home. What are you doing here? I'm going to call the police. But if you could say, my, here's what I'm about. Here's what my life is all about. In just one brief statement, what would it be? For some of you, you know, your mission statement would be, honestly, I'm just in it for the cash. I'm just here to try and make as much money and get as much stuff possible because really that's what your life is all about. Others of you, you're living for the trophies. You're just in it for the accomplishments, the things you can achieve or how you can prove yourself. Some of you may just say at this stage in life, my mission statement is to raise a couple of healthy, mentally well-balanced kids and get them out of the house. That's all I want to do. But many of you have never really pieced it together that if we are followers of Jesus then the mission of His life should overlay the mission of our lives and be a perfect fit. And yet for a lot of y'all here this morning, it's never dawned on you that the mission of Jesus' life should be the mission of your life. You've never understood that God has a mission for you. Maybe recently you've been offering up to God a lot of excuses as to why you can't serve Him or as to why He can't use you. And you've never realized, hey, Jesus can use anybody. And for some of y'all here today, the truth is that at one time you were very faithful in the mission that Jesus has for you. But some things have happened. Maybe life has been really hard on you and you've walked away. Or maybe life has been so good to you that you've become distracted. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where we learn this important fact about the mission of Jesus and His mission for us. And that is that the same gospel that invites everyone to come takes everyone who does come and sends them out. And I'm going to show you this in Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. So I want you to take your Bible, if you have one, and turn there with me, Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can follow along the words on the, are going to be on the screen, I believe. And we're going to stand to reverence the Word of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 1. The Bible says that Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Matthew's telling you, keep your eye on him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying; give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. You can be seated. When you come to Matthew chapter number 10, you come to kind of a massive shift in the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Jesus has shown us His authority over every element of the created order. He's shown us that He has authority over demons, He has authority over disease, Jesus has authority over the elements of nature, and He even has authority over death itself as He raises the dead. And He demands that we respond to that authority in obedience and in faith. But at the end of Matthew chapter number 9, the Bible says that Jesus looked out over the massive crowds of people that were following Him. And He looked at them through the eyes of a shepherd. And He saw them as sheep who were harassed and who were helpless. And the Word of God says that Jesus was moved with compassion towards them. And He turns to His disciples after taking in that great mass of people and He says, listen guys, the harvest is ready to be picked. And you need to be praying to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers who will go and work in that harvest. Presumably they did that. And now Jesus kind of flips the script and he takes those men and he sends them out into the harvest. In fact, if you pay attention to the text of Scripture carefully, you realize that what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is really the exact same thing that he's been doing. In fact, look back in Matthew chapter 9, if you still have your Bible open, and in verse number 35. Rather, verse number... Yeah, verse 35, that's right. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Now notice verse 1 of chapter 10. And He called to Him His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. You go back to Matthew chapter 4. The Bible says that Jesus was going forward and He was doing the very things that the disciples are going to be called here to do. And so the disciples and the followers of Jesus, even you and I today, we are not so much called to do something for Jesus, but we are doing something with Him. We are doing something, as it were, as his ambassadors, his representatives. Jesus would not have been in all of these different homes and all of these different places and villages at one time, so he sends them out to represent him. In fact, that is kind of top-loaded into the very word for disciple. Now today, most of us think of a disciple, and we automatically use that as a synonym for Christian, and as well we should. But it had a really specific meaning in the first century. A disciple was a learner. It was a student, a follower. And what would happen is a rabbi or a teacher would go and he would usually handpick his students to follow him and those men would learn everything that that master or that rabbi knew. They would learn how to think the way he thought. They would learn how to live the way that he lived so that they could leave his classroom of life and go and live life in exactly the way he did and teach others how to live the way their master did. Jesus has called these 12 men into that kind of relationship with him. He said, you're going to spend three years Years living exactly how I live, hanging on every word that I teach you, and I'm going to empower you to do what I have been doing. It's wrapped up in the very word apostle that's used. They're in verse number two to talk about the disciples. Now I know today in our climate, man, we hear the word apostles and we think about some guy on TVN wearing a purple robe. This is not that, okay? Uh, and they're not either. But this is not that for sure. The word apostle just means a sent one. These men have been called to Jesus to learn from his life. Now they're being sent out by Jesus to show his life to the world. And I want to just belabor this point for a moment because it's something that we are so quick to forget as believers today, that you and I as God's people are people with a mission. We are a sent people. In fact, the word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means sent. And so when we use the word missionary, when we talk about the great commission of the church and those verses that were read a moment ago from Matthew 28, we are saying that Jesus has sent us in the same way that God sent Him. That we live with the same kind of missionary impulse that the Lord Jesus Himself had. In fact, listen to a couple verses. Jesus would say in John chapter 20 and verse number 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus would say earlier in John chapter 17 and 18, as you sent me into the world, talking to his Father, so I have sent them into the world. You see, friends, the very heart of the Christian message, and some of you need to hear this today, because you've been confused about what Christianity teaches, the very heart of the Christian message is that our God is a missionary God. God is not in heaven saying to the world, if you can get your way to me, I will forgive you and I will bless you and I will take you as my people. But our God is a missionary God who comes after the lost. He's a God who pursues people in their need. He's a God who loves people where they are and comes to them where they are and changes them where they are and gives them the life that they need. That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 10. He is a missionary God away from home, living in a foreign culture, bringing truth to people who are in darkness. And the same God who sent Him sends the disciples here in Matthew 10. And the same Jesus who sent the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 has sent everybody that follows Him. So that I really do believe that the saying by Charles Spurgeon, A great British preacher from the 19th century is absolutely right when he said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at this passage of Scripture where the disciples are sent on this very, very first, very, very brief mission trip and understand that the same God who sent them is sending us And that the gospel who invites everyone to come will always send out everyone who does come. And as we talk through these verses, what I want us to look at here, there are some differences between their mission and ours, but there are also some similarities. And those differences and those similarities, they each point us to important insights that we need to know as we think about going forward into the world with the gospel. And so there are three pieces of advice that I want to draw out of this passage of Scripture. If you are going to be a missionary and not an imposter... And the first piece of advice I want to bring out of this passage is from verses 1 through 4, and it's this simple piece of advice. Be yourself. Be yourself. Now, the text begins in verse number 1 by giving us just the the names of the 12 disciples. And I know how it is, y'all, when we read lists of names in the Bibles, and this one isn't as bad as a lot of them, but a lot of times we'll read lists of names in the Bible and our brain just shifts into what we're going to have for lunch, doesn't it? And our eyes get heavy. I mean, I'm getting sleepy even just talking about it. I understand that. But this list of familiar names of the twelve disciples, it does offer us some important insights because if we know something about these men, as you learn about who they were and what they were like, you realize that they represent an incredible cross-section of different kinds of people and Jesus chose to use each of them as different as they were. And I just want you to know today, there is no prototype for the kind of person that God uses. There's no typical personality, there's no typical background, there's no typical education. There is no typical kind of person that God said, I can only use this kind of person. Jesus uses all kinds of people. In fact, the first person mentioned in these verses is the Lord's disciple, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, Simon Peter was a fisherman. Hard-working, blue-collar man. Had a farmer's tan, or a fisherman's tan, I guess, calluses on his hand. And Simon Peter was loud. He was Impulsive. His mind moved at a million miles an hour and his mouth was just a little bit faster than his mind. Any of y'all ever have that problem? I know some of y'all got that problem. You say everything that's on your mind. You, everything you think you say, even if you hadn't even thought about it yet, right? Simon Peter, man, he would open his mouth just to exchange feet. Simon Peter, he liked to cuss a little bit. He loved Jesus, but he liked to cuss a little bit. He's aggressive, he's outspoken, Like most of these men, he's kind of proud of himself because of how devoted he is to Jesus. And yet this man also is a man who committed a terrible sin. Publicly claimed he'd never even heard of Jesus and denied Him. Yet this man, as complex and complicated as he was, as human as he was, this is the man who preached the very first Christian sermon. That on the day of Pentecost, he stood up and people, called people to repent and the Lord brought salvation through the life of Simon Peter. God can use loud, impulsive, aggressive, outspoken, and sometimes stupid people who like to cuss a little bit. Some of y'all ought to have a hand in the air right now saying, Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> then the Bible mentions the name of his brother. His, brother's, his name's Andrew. We don't know as much about Andrew as we do Peter, probably because he's not like Peter. He doesn't seem to be as outspoken. He doesn't seem to be as, you know, type A. He's comfortable in the second chair. But one thing that's interesting about Andrew is that every time you read about Andrew in the Bible, he's always introducing somebody to Jesus. He just had a heart to share Jesus with people. In fact, he's the one that introduced Peter to Jesus. Not everybody is outgoing. Not everybody is extroverted. And sometimes in the church, we have this bad habit of really putting on the platform people that have uh, extraordinary personalities and over-the-top gifts and very uh, charismatic mannerisms. And we think, well, those must be the only kind of people that Jesus used. But let me just be real pastoral for a minute. Some of y'all are awkward. Some of y'all shy. Some of y'all backward. Some of y'all are weird. And Jesus can use you too. He can. Because He uses people of all stripes, of all personality types. Then... The Bible introduces us to two more brothers at the end of verse 2. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll find out that James and John were also fishermen, like Peter and Andrew, probably kind of worked in close quarters with them. But James and John, the Bible says specifically that these men had servants, which means they were probably a little bit more well-to-do. These are not two guys just floating around Smith Lake on a bass tracker. This is like deadliest catch-level stuff. This is, you know, a real business, okay? And so as men who owned servants, that meant that they were in the position in life where somebody else did the work and they got the credit for it. But we also know about these men that these men were very passionate men. And that's a great thing. But sometimes those passions and emotions can go overboard. There's one passage of Scripture, I love this story in the Bible, where James and John had been out preaching in a certain village and they come back and they say, Jesus, they didn't listen to us preach. You believe that? And they say, Lord, you want us just to go ahead and, and call down fire and brimstone on top of them right now? I mean, I would never think about doing that if y'all didn't listen to. Never enter my mind. And Jesus actually nicknamed them. Jesus was big on giving people nicknames. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. He said, "Your temper is so out of control and so sudden, it's like a, a thundercloud or a thunderstorm that just breaks forth on a summer afternoon." There's one place of Scripture where they had the nerve to get their mom to come up to Jesus, and mom asked Jesus. Lord, will you grant it so that one of my sons is on your right hand and the other is on the left? Not a big request, but in the kingdom, will you put them right beside you? These men are self-serving, passionate people, and the Lord used them. The Lord uses emotional people. He uses logical people and analytical people. And then there are the other guys. Look at these other guys. Philip and Bartholomew. Man, I can't hardly spell Bartholomew without looking at the Bible. Thomas. Thomas, we know, is a skeptic. He's a man who's slow to believe, and he says, who betrayed him you have men here from every different political viewpoint from every type of social strata from every kind of experience from every kind of background from every kind of life and jesus says i can take all of those people and if they will merely come to me i can use them for my purposes now based upon what you know about these people are these the men that you are going to pick to do much of anything if you know Peter likes to cuss out in the open, are you gonna let him preach? You ain't gonna let him lead in prayer, are you? Now Peter, why not you just take taking up the offer for now? That'd be not that our ushers love to cuss or anything. <laughs> you wouldn't pick these men to do anything, would you? There's not a seminary degree among them. There's no leadership, real leadership skill or experience among them. No practical hands-on ministry experience. I thought about it like this just the other day. At our church right now, most of you know we're hiring some important staff positions, some pastoral staff positions. You know my shortcomings. You know my personality. You know my sins and my temperament. Lord, use me as messed up as I am. And that's what the Lord loves to do. So for some of you, you need to hear today that that it's time to put the excuses as to why you can't serve Jesus. You need to put them to bed. The excuses as to why He can't use you, you need to put them away. Enough with the I'm too old and I'm too young and I'm too single and I'm too divorced or I'm too married or I've got two little kids or I'm too sick or I'm too busy and I'm too broke. Come to Jesus and say, Lord, this is what I am. And I want to get off the bench and I want to get in the game. And if you can use this ragtag group of 12 men, Lord, you can use me. John Wesley was in a a marriage that was so bad that his wife would grab him by the hair and drag him around the house and beat on him. Martin Luther liked to drink, probably a little bit too much, but he was German, so you know it kind of goes hand in hand. God uses people that you and I would look over. People whose intelligence and education and experience and emotional IQ and capabilities, and we say, well, it's just not good enough. They can't do anything with him. The Lord says, that's exactly who I want to use because that's exactly how I can get the most glory. And the Lord says, guys, come and follow me. So my piece of advice to you first today is be yourself. Be yourself. My second piece of advice from this text of Scripture, verses 5 through 8, and that is simply do your best. Do your best. Now, Jesus gets this kind of rough and tumble group of guys with him and he gives them their marching orders. And really what you have in Matthew chapter 10 is a sermon that contains very specific instructions about what they are supposed to do as they go out on this uh, short-term mission trip, on this preaching tour. And there's a lot of this, of course, that would overlap with what we do as a church, and we're going to talk about some of that. But what I'm interested in today are the very very unusual things Jesus tells them to do and not to do that are different from what He has told us, because I think we learn some important concepts about what God expects of us from what Jesus says that's different to these men. In fact, just notice the first one right away in verse 5. Jesus says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Isn't that peculiar? Jesus says, listen, this is Jews first and Jews only. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. You go to your people first. Why did Jesus do that? I thought Jesus loved the whole world. He's got the whole world in His hands, right? Jesus loves the little children, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. Why why is Jesus saying, limit the ministry to this one group of people? Well, you're right, Jesus does love the world. In fact, in Matthew chapter number 28, the gospel of Matthew ends with this same Jesus telling the same group of men that He has all authority in heaven and in earth, and they are to go into all the world and make disciples of all men and baptizing those men in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus does send us out into the world, but He did not send them out into the world. Not yet. Why? Well, there's there's some practical reasons and some theological reasons. The theological reason is that Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. And He came to the Jewish people in fulfillment of Jewish promises that God had given to Jewish prophets and other Jewish leaders. And God was going to give the nation of Israel ample time to either accept or reject Jesus. And so the Lord said, first we are going to them. But there's also you know, a, a practical reason to this. This is the first time the disciples are going to be on their own. Jesus knows they probably need a short leash. like The birds are getting ready to leave the nest. You, you just, just give them some low-hanging fruit. Let's make it real easy for them. Let's give them some easy wins before it gets any bigger. Now, I also think that it's good and insightful that Jesus gives these disciples focus. He tells them specifically, this is what your mission is. So that it's going to be really hard for them to drift away from that mission. Now we are today as God's people, as the church, we are commissioned to reach the world with the gospel. That's what we're here to do. Is to go into all the world, as Jesus said, to preach the gospel, to teach people to obey what he commanded and to baptize people in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. That's what we are here to do. But I do think sometimes that we think we can accomplish that without any real clear understanding of how we do it. And so we just kind of just determine that we're going to have our church and we're going to do things the way we want to do. And we wonder why it just doesn't work. Here's what we do. All right, here's what we do. We say, okay, we're going to have our church. And here's the kind of preaching that we want. Here's the kind of music that we like. Here's the way we want to dress. Here are all the programs that we need to have. We kick open the doors and say, all right, y'all come. And then we come in here and stew and get mad that nobody comes. Now, where are they at? What's wrong with these people? I'll tell you, the world's being fed extra hell in a handcart. People just, these, young, these millennials, we don't care much about church anymore. Just, now this millennials, they ain't going to come to church. It's just a different time. That would be the exact equivalent of me deciding to go to China and to plant a church and to do my very best to preach the word and to be faithful and to do everything that I could and never bother to learn Chinese. And then get mad because nobody's coming to hear my incredible English sermons. It's not going to do them any good, is it? At some point you have to learn to speak the language. You have to learn to focus on how has God wired up our congregation to meet the needs of the community that we are in. And where those things overlap, folks, that's your focus. That's your vision. That's your strategy. And the Apostle Paul would write about that himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he talked about how he was free from all, but he made himself a servant to all that he might win more of them. He said to the Jews, I became as a Jew. I put on my yarmulke and my prayer cloth and I went to synagogue. I didn't eat bacon. In order to win the Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. See what he says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul says that the call of the gospel is so urgent that there's nothing there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make sure I get the message of Jesus to people who really need it. Now, sure, folks, hear me well. There are many things as a church and as God's people that we absolutely cannot compromise. There are convictions and teachings of Scriptures that we cannot bend on or we will break. Period. it would be a good place for an amen. But amen, Brother Jesse, you're right. I'll, give, I'll do it myself, it's fine. <laughs> But folks, if the bedrock conviction about who we are and why we're here is that we are here because God loved us and sent His Son into this world to die on a cross and rise again from the dead and He saves people by grace, if that's what we are about, then that conviction shapes everything else that we do. And that conviction sends us to people who needs us. Which is why Jesus sends the disciples to do miracles. Now, get some hot water with some of this stuff because there are a lot of people today that are on television teaching that um, they still have the power to do miracles in exactly the same way that the disciples did. And where are those people at? Those people are in a television studio flying back and forth from their $4 million mansion on their private jet. They're not in a hospital in China helping people with the coronavirus, are they? You know, put your money where your mouth is. Or just keep your money and don't give it to charlatans on TV. Does God still do miracles every day? Every day. In fact, we don't look at our world enough and see how everything that happens right now is a miracle because God is and God is at work. But even though Jesus has not sent us out with the power and the ministry to do miracles like this, and if you think you've got the power to heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons, do it. Go to the funeral home. Cut loose. I mean, go for it. We'll find out, won't we? What you see in this text of Scripture is that the Lord gives them this power for two reasons. One is so that they can verify the authenticity of their claims and Jesus' claims by doing what Jesus alone could do. This validated the message. The miracles were not about necessarily raising the dead or healing the lepers. It was about saying there's power to what these men preach. And there's truth in what they say. But it also teaches us, I think, that the gospel always goes where it's needed. Think about what Jesus is saying. If they're going to heal the sick, what kind of people are they hanging out with? If they're going to raise the dead, what kind of people are they hanging out with? If they're going to be around demon-possessed people, what kind of people are they hanging out with? If they're around lepers, where are they going? They're going to people that actually need the message of the gospel. And they want to go with the power of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. And they want to go with the gospel where the need is. And they want to say that we are making a difference because Jesus has made us different. And folks, that's what God has called us as a church family to do. I pray that this community is better because our church is in it. I pray that your neighborhood is better. I pray that the little cul-de-sac I live in is better because I'm there. I hope that the office you work in is better because you go to work there every day. I hope that your school is different because you're there. We should have it in our hearts that we want to be the presence of Jesus everywhere Sharon Heights Baptist Church has a presence. That we want to be His presence everywhere that we go. The Lord has not called us to do miracles for the Jews the way He did His disciples. He called us to make disciples of the whole world. And what is a disciple? I told you a moment ago, it's a follower, a learner, somebody who is in the school of Jesus learning how to live life the way that He lived. We are here today to develop people who live like Jesus. We are here to develop people who think like Jesus. We are here to develop people who obey the teachings of Of Jesus. Until they reach a point of maturity where they are able to go and make disciples themselves. That's what Jesus has commanded us to do. Again in Matthew 28. He said go into the world and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So do your best. The third piece of advice I would give you today. Jesus says in verses 8 through 15. You should be yourself. You should do your best. But you would better stay focused. You need to stay focused. Jesus gives some... Again, some really odd counsel to his disciples. Heal the sick, raise the dead, sure, sure. Then he says, you receive without paying, give without paying. What Jesus is going to do here is warn the disciples about two threats to their focus. The threat of what happens when life is going really, really good and the threat of what happens when things turn really, really bad. We'll call them today the threat of affluence and the threat of adversity. So let's notice first the threat of affluence. Jesus tells them not to take any money for their preaching. He says, you received without pay. You did not buy the gospel. Don't take any money for the gospel. Jesus did not charge you to come. So you shouldn't charge anybody else to come and hear what you have to say. In other words, be open-handed with the gospel. And trust God to meet your needs. And that's a strong word for our church, isn't it? That we should do everything that we can to invest well in giving out the gospel. And Does that cost money in today's world? You better believe it. And who's going to pay for it? The Lord's going to pay for it. He's going to take care of it, and he will bankroll it. Then he even says some real specific stuff about not taking two tunics. Jesus is real specific. They shouldn't take two pairs of sandals. Don't even take a staff with you. Again, he's saying that the Lord will take care of them. Then he says, for the laborer deserves his food. He could be saying that all you really should expect is for God to provide your basic needs and not give you a lavish lifestyle. Or he could be emphasizing the word laborer, saying God didn't send you out to get fat and lazy. God sent you out to work. And if you work, then God will take care of you. But if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Then he says, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy and stay there until you part. He says, when you go to that first house, you stay in that house until you leave town, until ministry takes you somewhere else. Now why is Jesus being so specific about their lodging and about real estate? Here's why. They would go into town and preach, and somebody may come up to them and say, guys, we want to hear more of what you've got to say. Uh, We are starting to understand something about Jesus. We, We want you to come and live in our house. We've got, you know, a finished basement. You guys are welcome to it. You can work out of our house. We'll feed you. We'll take care of you. And so the disciples would go, and they would live in maybe, you know, this person's basement or whatever. And it could be that after a few weeks or months or however long it may have taken, somebody with a nicer house would have came along. Or somebody with a pool house. Amen. And said, hey guys, man, we're we're all about this Jesus stuff. Why don't you come and live with us? And it would very quickly look like or even turn into a situation where the disciples were using the gospel to advance themselves. And Jesus says, don't do that. Trust the Lord to provide what you need, even if it's not exactly what you would have planned for yourself. And the Lord will take care of you. I think we need to hear this warning from Jesus today. Because many of us are under the mistaken impression that if we always follow Jesus and always do what He wants, and that's always going to translate into affluence and comfort and an easy life and health and wealth. And so that every opportunity, it has to be from God because that's what God does. He blesses people, right? That every, what looks like an open door, that has to be from God. And why shouldn't I walk through it? And we should always take the next step to advance ourselves because that's what God would have us to do. But we never really stop and think, is this really just an open door for my bank account, or is this an open door for the gospel ministry? Whenever you think about it, is God opening a door for me to be more useful, or is God just opening a door for me to be more successful? We just don't make decisions like this. Even as a church, we don't think this way. Because many times as a church, our, uh, our kind of default mode is, hey, the leadership's stable, we're making enough money to tread water month by month, The lights are on, the bills are paid, the church is reasonably full. And you don't want to shake anything up. You don't want to change too much. Don't want to make those key givers mad. You don't want to reach out to too many people because that comes with too many headaches with new people starting to come. And so we get comfortable and we get lazy. Jesus is warning about that. But then he also warns about the danger of adversity. There's an equal and opposite problem that they would go and be rejected. You see that in verse number 13. In verse number 14, Jesus says, when you go, if they reject you, he says, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. Now that's a weird, again, another weird piece of advice, that shaking the dust off your feet, that may be an expression you've heard before, but what does it mean? Well, this was actually a Jewish practice and a Jewish figure of speech. They would go into a, a Gentile nation and when they would come back to the borders of Israel, they would quite literally shake the dust off their feet. And it was kind of this way of saying, I'm not carrying the unbelief of the Gentiles into the borders of Israel. I'm not going to carry their unbelief into my future. And Jesus says, don't let somebody's negative treatment of you because you love me, don't let that affect your future. Don't let that derail you from following me. Don't let that distract you from what I have put in front of you. And we do that, don't we? We do that. We know people are going to be a little weird around us if we talk too much about Jesus, so we dial it back. We know that people are going to make fun of us, or we know that it may cost us opportunities, so we dial it down and we let somebody else's negative treatment of us affect what God has called us to do. When the truth of the matter is, Jesus says, you need to stay focused. Not everybody's going to like you because you love Jesus. I mean, welcome to planet Earth. They ain't going to like you for something anyway, right? And Jesus says, you need to learn just to... Pass your peace on to them when they're a blessing to you. Keep it to yourself. And said, so don't let it affect you, affect you. Don't let it shake you. And just move forward. Don't carry somebody else's unbelief into your future. And yet believers do this. And it happens in the context of the life of the church too. Because somebody may mistreat us. Somebody may hurt our feelings. Or some believer or leader that we've put a lot of confidence in over the years. They disappoint us with a decision that they make. Or with some sin they get involved in. And we look at that and we let somebody else's unbelief go with us into our future. And some of you have done that here at Sharon Heights. You have let somebody else's unbelief, their sin, their mistake, their dumb decision, you have let that go with you into your future so much so that it's shaping your future. Because at one time you were faithful, you were committed, you were involved, you were invested, and then things blew up. I'm trying, brother. Things blew up here, there, or somewhere else. And it derailed you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Jesus said, you need to shake the dust off of your feet yes, sir. Yeah. so that you can keep going. That's the point. Keep going without their negativity bringing you back and draining you down. Now, to finish up today. Jesus finishes by saying, That for those that reject the message of the disciples and who really are not rejecting the disciples but are rejecting him, he says it will be more bearable for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of final judgment than it will be for those people. That's a strong statement. Sodom and Gomorrah is not as bad as it gets. Jesus says to these people who are Jewish people, who have the temple. Scriptures, sacrifices, the priesthood. Jesus says to them, if you reject me, it will be more tolerable for a city that I destroyed with fire and brimstone dropping out of the sky like bombs than it will be for you. I think that tells me a couple of important things. First of all, Spurgeon said every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. I told you that a minute ago. Everybody who's not a Christian is the mission field. And these verses remind us that the task is urgent. Folks, I know we're busy. I know we've got things happening in life. I know that to a lot of us, you know, Jesus is just something we do a couple hours every week. I understand that. But we so quickly forget how hot hell is, how great heaven's going to be, how short life is, how long eternity is, and how amazing grace is. We forget those things, and so we forget how urgent the task at hand is. These verses remind us of how urgent the task at hand is. But they would also say to you, if you're here today and you're not a believer and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to realize and you need to understand that the reason God sends people and calls preachers and establishes churches and sends missionaries all over the world, the reason He does that is because He is a God of judgment and a God of love. And He wants to save people from Himself. Do you see that? Saving people from His own wrath against their sins. And so what Jesus is saying to some of you today, and I pray that God would let this break through the hardness of your heart. He was saying that it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than it was for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because you today have more truth than they had. You have heard more warnings than they heard. You have heard more of the gospel than they ever heard. And it will be worse for you as you have to stand before your God and answer for rejecting the truth that He sent your way. This is a strong warning. And if you're not sure about what all of this means, I would say it to you this way, and I pray that you would hear me. I would say that if we're talking about missionaries, or we're talking about sending people, that again, our God is a missionary God. That He saw that we were lost in the darkness of our sin, and He did not just say to us, y'all really need to do better. Y'all need to start a church, and y'all need to try a little bit harder. No, God looked at us in our sin and said to save you from what you deserve in your sin, I'm going to send my son who will live the life you could never live and who will die the death you should have died and will rise again after he dies so that he would give his own eternal life and his righteousness to everyone who would put their faith in him and commit to him and follow him. That's what the gospel is. But know today that all of you now are accountable for that message. Your judgment will be more severe because you were here this morning. You've heard and you have to answer for it. You are responsible for what you've heard. And also for Christians, you are responsible for what you know. How can we pretend like it doesn't matter? How can we pretend like it doesn't matter? Jesus has called us to Himself and He sends us out in His name. Go into all the world and make disciples. We're going to stand together today and we're going to have an invitation. If it were logistically possible, I would have two invitations today. First, I would invite those of you that may be here that aren't sure or are not believers, I would invite you to come. I'd love to pray with you or answer any questions you might have or work through whatever we've got to work through so that you could leave here today knowing that you're not going to face this kind of judgment that Jesus talked about. Some of you need to do that. But for those of you that are here there are believers. You may need to come and pray. You need to come and ask God to forgive you. You might need to come and make some things right in your heart so you're faithful to go. But really, church, listen to me now. Listen to me. The invitation to this message is not this way. The invitation to this message is that way. It's leaving with the gospel that Jesus sent us to share. So I'm going to pray for you today. And then if you need to come or if you just need to go, You do what the Lord leads you to do. Father, Lord, work in lives right now. Make the gospel real to somebody in their heart in this moment. While I pray, give them faith and change their life. But Lord, I pray that you would make the gospel real to your people, to people who were excited about it 10 or 15 years ago, to people who were faithful at one time, and to people who need to really get in the game for the first time. Make it real, God. Send us out, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.